1: in Nightlight. So glad you could join me today. I have Joshua Green with me today, and I'm so excited because we're going to be going into his book, Here Comes the Sun, the Spiritual and Musical Journey of George Harrison. And he, he has captured an essence, a spiritual essence of George Harrison, which I think is, is phenomenal. This is a little bit from the book. Uh, <clears throat> Joshua studied. Uh, meditation with the legendary Beatle George Harrison, and he draws on personal remembrances, recorded conversations, and firsthand accounts to create a moving portrait of, of George Harrison's spiritual life, his profound contribution to the Beatles' music, and previously unpublished anecdotes about his time with music legends, such as Bob Dylan, Elvis Presley, and others. Mia Farrell wrote about this book, Many well-known artists have touched people's hearts with their music, but few have ever succeeded in touching people's souls. That was George's gift, and his story is described here with affection and taste. It's a wonderful book, and I totally agree with her. Joshua uh, earned his master's degree from Hofstra, Hofstra University, where he taught Hinduism and Holocaust history until his retirement in 2013. He's spoken at the Pentagon, the Judge Advocates College, and the New York <clears throat> New York Public Library's Distinguished Author Series, and his lectures frequently be uh, before state bar associations. He's had an opportunity which is magical, and he has pulled even more spiritual and magical material out there, so that so that we can understand the process that George Harrison went through and how it touched not only his life and his spirit, but all of those who came close to him and near to him. Even though not, not everyone understood, they appreciated the magic that he radiated from the journey that he had taken. So, welcome to the show, Joshua.
2: Thank you, Barbara. Lovely to be back again.
1: Yeah, we we did it. we I I did an interview with you on your um the uh, Swami and a Strange Land book and it touched me and moved me and obviously when I saw George Harrison I thought I don't know how he's going to pull this together but but you did beautifully <laughs> and um while I was you know very into the Beatles music it's only in later life that I have appreciated how some artists have been able to tap into a universe of um, energy that does touch your spirit, that does move your mm-hmm. soul, that does open you up to <clears throat> wanting to be a seeker as well. When you see what it did for his life, with his life, um, it was amazing. And you got to take part of that journey with him, which is even more phenomenal.
2: Yeah, talk about good karma. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was a young lad back then, 19, and visiting London as uh, on holiday break from uh, my studies at the Sorbonne in Paris, studying literature. And uh, someone had said, you know, there's this really unusual place you should visit, just off Oxford Street. It turned out to be a beautiful little building that George Harrison had leased for the Krishna yoga practitioners, friends of his, who were uh, um, studying bhakti, or devotional yoga. And uh, <laughs> I showed up, and they were serving a tasty vegetarian lunch, and I um, asked, asked about myself. I said, oh, studying in Paris and um, play music in a college rock band. Really, what do you play? I play organ. Really? It's interesting. Come with us. <laughs> so they traipsed <laughs> me upstairs and stuck me in this Volkswagen Mini. Do you remember the Volkswagen Mini bus? It was probably the most I dangerous do. vehicle ever allowed on the streets <laughs> of the world. So this thing is bopping along, and I'm saying, where are we going? They say, you'll see. You're in Christian's band now. Just wait, you'll see. So we show up about ten minutes later. Then door opens. This is big, very elegant street. Big door with the number three. I'm looking. This is 1969, remember? I'm looking around, saying, "Wait a minute, three? This is Savile Row. Three Savile? That's Beatles headquarters. What are we doing?" (laughs) Walked in the door, and there's the big green apple on the wall, and go downstairs to a recording room, and there's George Harrison standing there, skinny as a string bean, hair down to his waist, and uh he says hello to his Krishna friends, and they point to me and say something. He walks over and hands me a harmonium, which is a hand-pumped keyboard instrument, and he says, I understand you play, hog, and Well, here, just play along. And he started recording Indian devotional music with the Krishna yoga practitioner friends of his. So I'm picking it up and I'm playing along. I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I stay with these people, I get God and the Beatles. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so the the book, "Here Comes the Sun," is really a thank you. Fifty years later. To George for having kind of encouraged me to get deeper involved into spiritual practice
1: well you know it's, it's, it's an amazing thing how spirit does seem to have a, a magnetic uh, appeal to people who are on uh, I call them the seekers um, a long time ago when I started this radio show I started out by saying I'm seeking the seekers, and mm-hmm. that was exactly what I was doing. That's, that's what I continue to do, and I stopped doing it when somebody sent me a CD that was the Seekers, and I thought, "Oh crap! They thought I was looking for a musical <laughs> group." Um, but, but I, <clears throat> but that's that's truly what this show is about. It's it's about. First of all, letting people know they're not alone. And second of all, it's about putting information out there that that might be of benefit to them on their spiritual journeys. And this is such a a magical explanation as to how it works. Um, It's not a matter of putting an ad in the paper or any place like that. It's a matter of being out there and people will gravitate to you if it's their time. Well, first of all, I, I think, think it's
2: wonderful that you've been doing this so long. You have what a thousand or more programs recorded, I mean yeah. it's amazing. You're the you're the queen of spiritual podcasts, and you know, what you've been doing <laughs> is priceless. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well,
1: it's you know, as I said earlier, this is this is my way of getting a free education, um, <laughs> and and I, I think, but, but with with George Harrison, you know, he. He was like everybody else in that particular time frame, you know, looking around for something, searching for something, and and he tried a lot of different ways of finding what he was looking for. And
2: he did, yeah, he did.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, he tried it all, and you know, well, maybe not all, all, but, but a great deal of it, and I believe he tried LSD once, and it took him to another place and from then on he was searching for a way to get to that place without the drug and when he when he fa- fell into this group of people that that had a purity of spirit he was home and um he was so cool i mean he just i i think he he went through the he went through the whole process that all of us go through when we find a way to tap in first of all he was excited and elevated then he wanted everybody to be there with him then he got obnoxious with it and then he settled into becoming a living example of it and that's when the magic really happened
2: wow uh, what a beautiful summary of the entire story that's you've touched on the highlights there he was uh, i think you're right a, a seeker in the true sense in the in the most noble sense of that term um and it came about because he was part of this extraordinary group of of musicians who skyrocketed into the top of the entertainment world and were so popular and so much in demand and so successful that they lived in one lifetime what we mere mortals would take a hundred lifetimes to live. I mean, there wasn't anyone in the world they couldn't see or hadn't met if they cared to they They had all the money- you couldn't find any more money to give them. They had it all and you know they had gone through so many experiences that George once described his life as a climb up the material mountain to discover once he got to the top how much more there was on the other side. Right. And and that other side for him, you're quite right. When you, you mentioned uh, hallucinogens, it, it, he cautioned. I, I think your listeners deserve to know that um, George was very, very careful about this, very cautious about it. Um he said once that uh, if you if you really want to go higher you have to stop getting high. Yep. Um drugs in particular the hallucinogens which are a kind of alternate perception of reality can suggest intimate that there are other ways of seeing things but they are not themselves a vehicle of enlightenment. They they don't lead to higher <laughs> – I know from my own experiments no. in college, you know, you'd, you'd take LSD and you'd swear you were having these epiphanies and you'd write these things down. And the next day after <laughs> you'd come down, you'd read it and you'd go, what the heck is that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, yeah.
3: so George credits
2: uh-huh. it for having opened a door, but it was not until he started doing some serious reading. I mean, that, that was really – the embarking on the path for him, it started with Swami Vivekananda's book, Raja Yoga, which was written in 1956, or actually published in 1956. He, he had passed away by then. And then, of course, the remarkable book by Paramahamsa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, that one was published uh-huh. in 1940, 46, I think was the first edition. And uh, from from Vivekananda, George picked up this extraordinary idea that if there is a God, I want to see him. What good is there being a God if we can't see him? So that, for George, became a call to action, you know, a call to the road of adventure. And then with Autobiography of a Yogi, of course, he had his first intimations of a kind of mystical experiences that can occur through various forms of yoga and contemplative practice. And then meeting Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, that was in 1966, I believe, was the first meeting. And then in 1968, taking the Beatles, the other three Beatles, with him to Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh. And then coming back, and the other Beatles just deciding they just weren't as interested in the path that Uh George had embarked on. And when he comes back to London in 1968, that's when he meets these three couples from America who were practicing bhakti, devotional yoga, Krishna yoga, and got very close with them. And I showed up in 69, so it was a little bit after they had all gotten together and then in 69, at the end of 69 is when we started recording the devotional music. And the records that George did were extraordinary, amazing. They went to the top of the pops. Yeah. <laughs> he said to us, he said, let's, let's record the Hare Krishna chant. He says, I can see it now, the first Sanskrit mantra on the top 10. <laughs> These wonderful <laughs> visions of bringing the good news, so to speak, to uh, as wide an audience as he could reach.
1: Well, I think he, he transcended a lot and with, with a lot of people on a spiritual quest journey, I mean, that, that's a trite phrase, but it's the only one I've got. Um, he, he did a lot of research. He, he lit He, he pulled knowledge all over the place, you know, from books and stuff like that. He studied, but there's a big difference between, um, understanding intellectually and and knowing spiritually mm-hmm. and he you know i i know tons of people that have gosh tons and tons of certificates for you know classes they've taken and stuff like that but they don't they don't know on a spiritual level the material that they've been they've been handed so so the journey is one of gathering and then ingesting, and then living the philosophy, so that you become a living representation of the wisdom that you've got inside. And that's yes, what you did. You're,
2: you're describing the high stages when one becomes you know, the embodiment of, of the teachings. That's you know the Bodhisattvas in the Buddhist tradition, or the the Rishis and the Sadhus in the, the Hindu tradition, or the um, Saddikim in the Jewish tradition of the, the the sages and the realized souls, that's that's some pretty high stuff. Most <laughs> I'm teaching this, and I have to come to grips with it all the time. That you know, there's so much that I would love to share with people, and yet I know, and it takes only about an hour for everyone to kind of get real and say, hey, you know, this is all wonderful, but I got to pay my bills. You know, what does this stuff teach me? that's going to help me live my life on a very practical level you know reaching nirvana it sounds lovely but you know i've got a report i got to hand in tomorrow and and i got payments due you know people live very real practical lives and and um i think too too infrequently uh the connection is uh, is made or too frequently it's not made i guess um that these spiritual teachings they have practical value. They they yeah. do have application, you know, in, in, in the everyday world and, and um those are the teachers who are most valuable, the people who can translate these often very complex ideas into terms that anyone can can follow and appreciate and and, and apply in their lives. George did that. George had that ability. Oh. George could take a complicated book like the Bhagavad Gita and turn the Sanskrit verses into singable lyrics of a pop song. What an amazing what an amazing skill <laughs> that was. That was oh extraordinary. My
1: but it but his life was also an example of that when when his wife came to him and Said, I'm leaving you for... I can't remember who it was, but she was... Eric Clapton. Yes, and mm-hmm. he just listened quietly and he said, well, I guess I have to divorce her. And that was it. You know, it was his perception of reality that that enabled him to be the person that he was.
2: Yeah, the, the Sanskrit term from that is samatva. So we we have the equivalent term in English of same or sameness not not in the sense of um boring, but in the sense of seeing everything as equal of a certain kind of equanimity that he uh-huh. could take success and failure or good news and bad news and in a dispassionate way, see that all of this has a place in our journey to. Self-awareness to a higher state of being, and um, I think the actual quote what he said was, "Well, I would prefer that Patty go with with Eric than with some idiot." I mean, it, <laughs> he and Eric Clapton remain, were remain remained friends even after the breakup. Um, he didn't let that interfere, which is really something. I mean, you think about your best friend takes your wife away from you, and you stay friendly. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> Well, See, but yeah. that's the kind of person you know, he was you
1: know, he... well, he just had had gotten to a point where um and and I want people to understand that that none of none of what he became cost a lot of money i mean I mean yeah, he flew to all over the place to visit people and stuff like that. That's something not everyone can do, but his studies. And the way that he grew and the way that he expanded his consciousness and tapped into universal consciousness was was free. And it was just a matter of taking those steps and then applying them to your life. And I think that's what is so magical about his entire process. He figured out that this is a personal journey, and and that he did it internally, and and then his external life was a reflection of what was going on inside of him, and it was magical.
3: Hmm.
2: That's a lovely way of putting it. Uh, there, yes, there was an appreciation that I observed in him. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. He he and I were not exactly best friends or anything like that. I spent maybe a few months with him in the early seventies when. Where we were recording records and touring and so on, but uh, I, I wouldn't presume to call myself a close colleague of George Harrison. But it, I, there was enough time there that I could observe him and uh, see what you're talking about. He, there was no pretense in him. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite. If you if you spoke with him like a human being, you know, on Subjects that were meaningful, you know, like, you know, I've been reading this verse in the Gita. Uh, what's your understanding? Or, you know, if you spoke with him like like a, a human being, he was there for you. If he saw that you had that little twinkle in your eye, like, ooh, now I'm with a beetle, he would literally turn around and walk away. He did not want to reinforce any of that kind of false material identification in anyone. And and he 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 understood the value of humility. I mean, and for someone who was so world-renowned, he was a
3: fairly humble
2: guy. Um, after the Beatles broke up in 1970, he launched a solo career, and whenever he performed, he'd always put the other musicians out front. He would stand in the back. I mean, there are these little signs of the kind of. Personality and behavior that were exemplary. Um, and uh,
1: well, even when it was even when they went on, and even when they went on tour, not when, in a single career. You spoke about how when they got to the plane and they were flying to the next venue, on one side of the plane was the vegetarian food, but on the other side was the good garbage. I mean, he <laughs> <laughs>
2: he yes. He didn't. He wasn't one to impose his values or, you know, diet or anything on anybody. So, yes, when there was a plane that took the musicians on, let's say, the Dark Horse Tour or whatever the album might be that they went on the road with, um, he, he made sure that people got the kind of food that they wanted and that they liked. And he wasn't going to be, you know, huffy about it. Well, no, I'm not going to... Feed you that's dead flesh. I'm not going to feed you that. Whatever someone wanted, you know, that would make them happy and give them uh, a satisfying experience of being on tour with them. There was no judgment. That that's that's the point. He he didn't judge people in that way. Um, so you're quite right. I mean, it's it's wonderful seeing how you've picked up on some of these stories from from the book, and that was intentional. I mean, writing Here Comes the Sun, for me, was this very satisfying experience of condensing, consolidating the life of a man who, myself, I I consider him the closest thing we have to a contemporary mystic. George Harrison came closer to the mystic experience than any other contemporary person I know, and apart from my own guru, Bhaktivedanta Swami, Prabhupada, George was there. He made it. You know, he, he had come to that point that by the time he passed away in 2001 from cancer, he had reached this very, very, very extraordinary place of calm and, and spiritual peace, a very rare it would be considered in India an auspicious passing the way he died,
1: well so I the think sound that, of that,
2: chanting around him and so on beautiful
1: oh yeah well that's that's what he did for his father when his father died, and I believe his mother as well he chanted yeah was in that's
2: right yeah he he but i think he facilitated their transition by. Chanting these sacred mantras you you said it when we first began our conversation, Barbara. There are certain sounds that cut through uh the the conditioning of of the uh the life we've been living to stimulate consciousness i mean this if you don't mind me detouring for a moment, this is an important point for people to understand sure. this was at the core of George's spiritual practice. It's the core of my spiritual practice. It's the heart and soul of any true uh, meditative tradition that a distinction is made between the body and the self. The body is also the self, but it's a temporary self. We're housed in these bodies, and what in Sanskrit is called atma, or consciousness, exists before this body comes into being exists after this body dies that self that goes on and that has been here before that's the subject that's the that's the goal of the yogic traditions now in the past 20 30 years the field of consciousness studies has come quite far. I mean, you can get a PhD in consciousness studies today that you couldn't 15 years ago. It's, it's a fairly new area. Right. It also seeks to identify what is it that makes us uniquely ourselves? How do we know that we exist? How do we know that we are alive? What is that awareness of ourselves? And... That can't be explained through purely physicalist science. Empiric evidence can describe the workings of the brain, uh, the the mechanism of perception, the processing of information, but those functions are different from the person we are who is witnessing those functions. At work, and there's about the closest these days where the where the discussion is most recently is called panpsychism, which is not a new idea, but it's come back in vogue in in, in consciousness studies that proposes that mind is as fundamental to reality as gravity, uh, particles, forces. Um, so that there's this other element that cannot be tracked purely in a laboratory. Right? That's the point of tangency, if you will, between science and, and and consciousness studies. That fascinates me. That absolutely fascinates me. And it's it's a critical um, development in Fields of, of um, the definition of self because it points to the very thing that got George so excited and that gets me up in the morning and a lot of other people, namely, <laughs> what if there's more to reality than just, you know, things? Yeah. What if there's more to us than just you know our daily responsibilities and growing old i mean what if there's actually something that endures something that stays i mean i find that to be the most exciting prospect in the world
1: oh absolutely and and i believe that <clears throat> that the essence of his message is is the true master teacher and that that his message as a master teacher only takes place after his passing, and all that's left are the memories.
2: Hmm. That's a very profound thing you just said there. I don't know why it is, but the world seems to operate in such a way that we appreciate, I'm going to sound like a Joni Mitchell song here, you don't know what you've got till it's gone.
1: Right.
3: <laughs>
2: you know, well, And yes, it's thing very is, often after they've left. that you know, We appreciate he the, the teachings old, of the great when he, teachers.
1: When he was alive, he was a student. It took his passing to become a master.
3: Hmm.
2: Uh, there's something to what you're saying there. Um, if you go into his post-Beatles uh, music,
3: uh-huh. there's
2: this extraordinary quality particularly to the lyrics of albums like All Things Must Pass and Living in the Material World and so on it's almost like a spiritual diary yeah he's describing his realizations he's descri- describing his discoveries he's describing his fall downs you know his errors his, his mistakes he's he's opening his heart to people so that they can learn by his journey, his life. That's an amazing thing. Most oh, yeah. people would get well, too I th- embarrassed you know, to, I think to that reveal th- that.
1: The purpose of a physical reality and a physical lifetime is to experience those lessons, is to experience the pain and the, and, and all of the other stuff that goes with the physicality. And then as you transcend into spirit then your message becomes spirit and and people will look and 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 they will listen to his lyrics in a whole another way because i have found that that so many songs that have been written for for the la- for well traditional songs like some of this pop music i don't understand rapping i don't understand But if you look at the lyrics of a lot of songs, like "Till There Was You," is is the song really written to another person, or is it written to God? I was alone (laughs) until there was you.
2: Yeah, George liked to play that. That. that, uh, Well, of course, "Till There's" that particular song comes from the music man.
3: <laughs> and,
1: yeah.
2: And I don't think when, <laughs> when it was written it was meant to, as a as an ode to God but your point is well made. Uh he would in a song like something you know something in the way she moves attracts me like no other lover and he he described yeah. to us to, to his krishna buddies that that uh, he was describing god but he had to right. say she because people might get the wrong idea about. <laughs> so he
1: didn't want to become a poof.
2: No, exactly, and he would he would often do that. He, you know, he he would invest these moments of revelation, these moments of profound uh, insight, in into the simplest of, of of moments. It's extraordinary how he would do that. He, you just have to read the lyrics. It's really something. You said something important, though, and, and um, it brought to mind um, the Dark Horse Tour, which in some respects might have been the low point in an otherwise very distinguished musical career. Um, he was rushing to get the album out. It had something to do with tour dates and so on. And so he he, he recorded so many hours a day that his voice, he lost his voice. So the critics were rather unkind. And in the live performances of the album, they called it the Dark Horse Tour, H-O-A-R-S-E, and uh, earned him uh, some kind of negative reviews. And he took it very much to heart. You know, he cared about how people thought about him. And um, he went back to some of his old rocker ways, whether it was drugs or whatever, alcohol, whatever it might have been. And then um one of the people I interviewed for the book, Here Comes the Sun, was the late rock journalist Al Aronowitz. And Al described for me that um when George was in New York for the Bangladesh concert, raising money for the people of that war-torn part of the world, Um he described for Al... That he woke up one day after having gone back to these old bad habits, and said, "Oh my gosh, I forgot about my meditations." And he went right back to his daily chanting. He would, he did mantra chanting. His form of yoga was mantra chanting. He, he learned that first from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and then afterwards from. Bhaktivedanta Swami. And his favorite mantra was the Krishna mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And it's a call to God. Please allow me to serve you. It's a beautiful, simple, almost a childlike call. And he would chant on beads, which is a strand, almost like a rosary. It's called a mala, which is is Sanskrit for a garland. It's like a garland of flowers, these these beads, And he would chant every day. Um, on his property at uh, Friar Park, west of London, there was a tree that had fallen, not fallen down, but it died. The tree had died. And so he called a, 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 a sculptor friend of his and had the faces of his beloved teachers carved into the trunk of this tree. So on that tree, you'll see the face of Vivekananda, the, the face of Yogananda, the face of Prabhupada. And uh, he would go there in the morning and sit before that tree trunk and, and chant on his beads. And um, he took it very seriously. I mean, this, this is an extraordinary thing that he would allow us inside his journey to learn that if, You know, you're going to fall down, you're going to scrape your knees, and you know what? Don't give in to the despair. Just get up and keep moving. You know where he learned that it was Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan did not look back. Bob Dylan wrote a song, and then he moved on. He didn't you know, go back and fiddle with lyrics or whatever. George appreciated that. He 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 liked the idea that you know we're in, we're fallible creatures and that's fine. Just don't wallow in in despair and and you know embarrassment over making a mistake. Mistakes can be a really good friend. A really good learning experience. Move on now. And and um I know for myself that that's one of the things that I took away from my time with George. They were <laughs> There was a moment when um, we were going to go out on tour. He had his road manager, Derek Taylor, I think his name was, book us into outdoor concerts in Amsterdam and all over Europe. And uh, we would go and we would chant mantras, you know. (laughs) And it was um, one time he came to the temple on Bury Place off Oxford Street and he had given us a microphone on this shure s c h u r microphones which had a kind of a metal mesh with small globe head someone had dropped it and it was dented he looked at that and he looked at us and he said you know pardon my imitation you know this micro this, this, this is this is krishna's you know it's not yours <laughs> you should take better care of the you know here he is teaching us you know, we were the full-time ashram people, and he was the, the rock star, but he was teaching us. It was an extraordinary uh, thing to see how he was able to uh, walk that fine line between a worldly life and an otherworldly life.
1: It was beautiful. Well, he, he also, he was into nature. He was into the garden. He was into the, the state that they brought that he... You know, planted hundred. He, I love the story that he went to a, a close, a nearby um, nursery, and asked the man, you know, how's it going? Are things, you know, doing well? And and the man said, No, it's been very, very slow. And he said, Well, let me give you a boost. I'll take all the trees you've got.
2: (laughs) And yeah, he was generous, very, very generous in that way. I'll tell you something, though, about his gardening. You know, he was such a fine gardener. Here's something about George. Whatever he undertook, he became a master at it, whether it was playing the guitar or or playing the sitar or writing songs or driving race cars or chanting mantras or becoming a gardener. I mean, everything he did, he sought out the best teachers, he learned it. He took it seriously, and he mastered the skill. It was an extraordinary thing to see. When you visited his home at Friar Park, I remember this clear as a bell. It wasn't a, like a proper, trimmed, you know, English garden. It wasn't formal in that way. It was wild. He'd have tall flowering trees next to you know wild grasses, and then bushes and and it 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 looked very spontaneous meaning that he wasn't trying to prove to anyone what a great gardener he was it's almost as though he was just creating the space and allowing nature to do her thing and it is an extraordinary statement um an expression of the kind of person he was that he didn't want the credit he 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 enjoyed. For him, gardening was like stroking, caressing the body of God. You know, God and nature. Yeah. It, it was a spiritual practice for him, gardening, and it was well, it, it was you, beautiful. What he created was beautiful.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, you you mentioned, <clears throat> Hare Krishna. What does Hare Krishna mean, and you know, translate it into English if you can,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and sure. explain to people, because because I think I have heard myself, after reading the book, wandering around and, you know, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, yeah, it's going through the, the, the chant, because it flows so easily. and Yeah, it is
2: catchy, I'll grant you
1: <laughs>
3: well,
1: well, and he... When he started to get into all of this, he tried, what I think is fascinating, he tried to um, push it a little too hard and people weren't responsive um, yeah. because they expected rock and roll and they got Hare Krishna. And he did learn that, that you give people a taste and if they like it, they'll come back for another plateful. And if they don't, that's okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's a very lovely culinary metaphor. Uh, yeah, that it's normal. I mean, w- you know, if you discover something and you get excited about it, um, you want to share it with your friends and your family or whatever. I mean, I, we all have people we know who have gotten turned on by something and, you know, they want you to do it with them, and that's fine, as long as it doesn't get, you know, too obnoxious. Um, and... George was like that initially. You know, when I first met him, which was December of 1969, so he would have been 26, 26, 27, something like that. And he was really at the the, the height of the energy of, of, of his spiritual searching then. And um, you're, you're quite right. I mean, he went out on tour and, you know, he'd get up on stage and hold a big, painting of Krishna or something and say, you know, hey, whatever name of God you've got, let's chant together, you know, let's sing God's names and people were, were kind of rolling their eyes at that stuff. Um, and he learned very quickly that, you know, force doesn't work and uh, you're much better off uh, keeping it on the low down and um, so after a while, you know, he would answer people's questions if they came to him. So to answer uh-huh. your your question about the mantra, in in sans, Sanskrit is considered the, the language of the gods. It's the oldest language in the world. And there are certain sounds that come down that have survived the test of time, if you will, that stimulate consciousness. I mean, the right, you know, create the right vibration, the right sound. You can break a glass window. You know, it's a matter of yeah. the, the pitch, as you were saying yourself earlier.
0: Um,
2: sound can... My wife is in the jewelry business. And when people come to the Fortune of Jewelry Store to clean a piece of jewelry, she'll put it into a device that uses sound vibration to clean. So sound can cleanse. So a mantra, Manas Traya. The the word mantra is comprised of two parts, manas meaning the mind, and kraya meaning uh, liberation or freedom from. So to to become free from the vice of the mind, the, the, the fickle vagaries of our own mental actions, a mantra is very effective. It focuses attention, it calms the nerves, lowers the metabolic system, lowers heart rate, and the particular mantra that's uh, prescribed by the Sanskrit texts for the times that we live in now is the Krishna mantra. So there, it's comprised of three words. Hare, which is the vocative case of Hara, Hara being another name of Radha. Radha is the embodiment of devotion to God. She is love of God personified. Uh, Hare Krishna, the word Krishna means the most beautiful, the most attractive. And Rama, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama. Rama comes from the Sanskrit verse Ramate Yogino Anante, that the yogis, the most advanced yogis, experience the greatest Rama, the greatest bliss. So we put the words together in these eight couplets, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama Rama, Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And initiation into the bhakti tradition means taking certain vows, and one vow is to chant on this rosary of 108 beats that mantra 16 times a day going around the rosary 16 times. It's about an hour and a half of mantra meditation a day. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes in the early days, people would come up to me and they'd say, How, why do you keep singing that same song all the time? <laughs> Isn't it boring? <laughs> <laughs> And no, no, because unlike a material, I'm sure you think Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, that's going to get boring. But these transcendental sounds, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, those those are very pleasing to the self, to the soul. And uh, the the taste for that chanting grows and grows. I'm 72 now, and I started chanting when I was 19, so I'm not very good at math. What is that, 50. 50- a lot? years just living that. it <laughs> a lot of And <laughs> yeah. I, I promise you, Barbara, it hasn't gotten boring <laughs> well and i was, today, I was trying, trying
1: to more I was trying to think of a way for people to understand the sort of bliss that you get from it, and
3: mm. it, it, there
1: there is a a kind of um it's a transcendental bliss. That's the only way you can put it. Um, yeah. It takes you outside of yourself because what happens is, what I think is beautiful about it, is that by by chanting it over and over and over and over, begin to imprint your brain and your memory with that. And so you flow absolutely automatically into it from time to time. And and I, I, I highly recommend people... Go on YouTube, find find a Hare Krishna chant, listen to it a number of times, chant it with the YouTube, and you'll find that you will find yourself, when you have nothing going on and you're just, you know, rather than talking to yourself, you begin chanting. And it's, mm. it's really, it's a remarkable experience. Um, and it also, we, we spoke before we we came on air about, there is a resonance, a frequency that opens you up to a greater understanding of the vastness of quote unquote god I, I have trouble with the word "god because it limits it 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 opens you to the limitless consciousness, the divine consciousness that is out there and
3: yeah.
2: That's well said.
1: You could, well said you you can either you know, either just enjoy that or be aware that you've opened a doorway for creativity and inspiration to come into your life and it will change beautiful. your life
2: yeah oh that's lovely that's a lovely description i'll add one i'll add one little thing to that because you did a beautiful summary there in a in a uh, in a book from the sixteenth century, called in in Sanskrit, the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, available in English under the title Nectar of Devotion. In that book, the author Rupa Goswami, a follower of the Saint Chaitanya, who was the first to bring the chanting of the Krishna mantra into public venues, um, Rupa Goswami describes that the first installment, first thing that happens is a sense of ah, kind of relief. The more you chant, the more you realize, wow, I'm not all of the traumas of my life. You know, I ha- I may have I may have sadnesses but they don't define me. That's not who I am. And that's just the beginning. I mean that's the first thing that happens, that sense of relief and that comes with chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. And after that, as you were intimating, you know the, the the beautiful, blissful emotions begin to grow and emerge more and more and more, until there are descriptions in these ancient texts and it's amazing of the elevated yogis, you know, the advanced yogis, just rolling on the ground in, in joy over uh, the knowledge of themselves as the eternal beings that comes from this mantra this chanting of this mantra it's a wonderful thing
1: it is and it's the the uh, portal that it opens to the creativity within you is profound and you don't have to <clears throat> you don't have to become a vegetarian you don't have to do a lot of things but if you have um a form if you have a roadmap, so to speak, of opening that door inside of yourself, um, this works. Lots of people meditate silently, and you know, and that works for them. But but there is a magic and a joy for the rhythm that the Hare Krishna chant opens you up to, and um, in in many cases. Um, it does become a dance. It does because because it it opens you up and things are flowing more joyfully throughout your body. Um, hmm. It it may not be for everybody, but for those that it does serve, it serves well. So long as you, you know, it will serve you as well as you serve it.
2: You, you make me smile, Barbara. Cause I can't help but think that if George were listening in right now, he'd be very happy <laughs> hearing <Here we go>. us. <laughs> talking about chanting Hare Krishna, because that really was his methods, after all. You know, he wanted people to know that uh, freedom, that, that creative impulse that you were describing that comes from uh, opening yourself up to other dimensions of reality. I mean, one of My brother's a physicist. I think you and I maybe talked about this last time. Um, Brian Green is a remarkable a scholar and and, uh, someone who has done more than anyone I can think of to popularize uh, science. He's an extraordinary writer and so on. And um, he and I often, even though he comes from the physicalist side of things and I come from the, if you will, the consciousness side of things, we do agree that the universe is so... Extraordinarily multidimensional, that it allows room for many, many kinds of realities. It doesn't have to be all one way or all the other way. And and you made a good point. You know, just you st- uh, t- just set out. You know, the journey starts with one step. You know, so you yeah. don't have to, you know, change your diet or do this or do that. Just opening up to some of those other dimensions through the simple practice of chanting a mantra uh, has extraordinary effect. Extraordinary effect. So, uh, yeah, I think George is smiling.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think so many today are, are lost and frightened and don't know what's coming next. And the reality is, you know the present is the only thing you're guaranteed so enjoy it expand on it and grow with it mm-hmm. and yeah. t- tomorrow yeah. might may not come but but if you do what you can with what you've got today i found that um i call i i call going to that place inside of you where you open yourself up to uh creation and whatever i call it clicking in you know i've been in this field for Oh goodness! I keep saying fifty years, and it's been a good decade that I've been saying fifty years. So, but at least at least <laughs> half a century. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, advanced yeah, mathematics. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but but I have found that that, um, and, and like I said, I call it clicking in. When I click in, there is a sense of timelessness and magic and it's it's possible to draw on on so much more that is out there in universal consciousness than than is within my consciousness sitting here um you know talking intellectually but but you know when you talk on this material you can't can't help but open up to that other area and what i find fascinating is once you have opened up to that creative side of yourself to recognize that you are a part of creation and therefore part of a creator so that, so that you can pull material through that tunnel and apply it to your life. And there is, I use the term all the time, you take your life from being a black and white experience to a technicolor one. There's magic mm. there.
2: No. Let's 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 put some legs on this for for people. Um sure. we're we're confronted every day with very real challenges. I mean I was just hearing a report on how um here in New York where I live um restaurants are tr- struggling with wages. You know, people are starting to come back to restaurants, but should people have to depend on tips? Should restaurant owners create at least some kind of a base salary for people so they can have that kind of dependability and reliability? Um, how do you, you know, pay your bills if you don't know what you're going to earn this week? Well, Friday I made $500 in tips, but Wednesday was raining and I didn't make anything. And what if you can't afford health care? Um, what if your children are having Challenges in school. I mean, there are real-life things that are going on. Often that creates the kind of uh, stress and tension that becomes toxic. It builds up. And when that happens, the brain is not functioning efficiently. It's having to deal with all of these toxic chemicals. The practice of chanting... Does certain things. First of all, you have to breathe. (sighs) If you're going to be chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, you take a deeper breath. That deeper breath brings more oxygen into the bloodstream. When that extra oxygen gets to the brain, it releases all kinds of marvelous chemistry that can help you deal with stress. It can help you fight stress. It also gives you an opportunity to take a pause, an extra beat. So instead of reacting, reacting to stress with a knee-jerk kind of sense of defensiveness and anxiety, which doesn't help solve anything, no. there's, there's an extra moment to allow the thought processes to, to filter down through the, through the brain, through the cerebral cortex. And so you're reacting with a bit more reflection and when that happens, avenues out of a dilemma open up that you might not have otherwise ever even imagined. So there's a real practical, boots-on-the-ground benefit to chanting. I, I very often tell my students, I can't tell them to chant because in the university that, that would be considered you know crossing a line that, you're not supposed to cross, but I will suggest to them that they take a deep breath before they go into a test or an exam or some difficult situation. Just get some extra oxygen going through the bloodstream. Now you and I can talk about how, as long as you're going to take an extra breath, you might as well chant the mantras along with yeah. it. <laughs> so, so there's some very, very practical um, benefits to to mantra chanting. And, um, these things are beginning to, you know, have clinical application as well. So, uh, yeah, it can, it can go very far.
1: Also, the use of the paradiddle. I mean, are you familiar with that? No. (laughs) The paradiddle, um, is, is a very basic, drum technique but it comes but, but way before that it's a way of balancing the left and right hemisphere of, of your brain and, and for those listening I will talk you through it we're going to if you put your hands on the table and I'll I'll walk you through it and every time I, I say tap every time I say tap tap so so Paradiddle goes like this. It's, no, I'll call out the left and the right and you tap according to what I do. So it's left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, Oh, yes, now right, I know what you mean. Left.
2: Yes, I have drummer friends who, who teach me, who've taught me how to do that.
3: <laughs> okay. Now
2: I know what you're referring is, to. Yes, yes, yes.
1: That is the paradiddle. And if you do it, for, you can do it on the steering wheel. You can do it on your legs if you're sitting someplace and you're getting antsy. And if you do it for a good five minutes, maybe ten, you will balance the left and right hemisphere of your brain and open yourself up to a greater sense of peace.
2: I didn't know that that's what it was called. Yes, that's a lot of fun doing that.
1: And, and so, I mean, there are all sorts of little Tricks and quirks and things like that that you can utilize that spiritually balance you to be able to focus, and and certainly chanting is is a great way to do it. And if you've never been in a room, I had a friend who I can't remember who the teacher was, but we went to an ashram someplace in New York, and it was a, it was a, a lady, and um, I sat in a room with about. Two thousand other people who were chanting Om, and let me tell you, your your body vibrates to it after a while yes. to become yes. part part yes. of part of a yes. swell of energy, and and again that's that's using sound to vibrate mm-hmm. inside of you to open doors to another realm.
2: People often ask me, "What is that Om thing that you chant?"
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the, you know, the the ancient Sanskrit texts describe that Om is the primordial sound that launched creation. Uh, you might make a parallel with the biblical verse: "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Om would be that primal creative sound that uh launched creation. And um there's a way to chant it as well. It starts in the diaphragm, it works its way up. Uh very, very powerful mantra. The difference between the Om mantra and the Hare Krishna mantra is that om is an impersonal sound. It, it doesn't relate to the emotion that comes from recognizing the personhood of all beings. The beauty of the Krishna mantra is that it has that same sense of stimulating consciousness, but it's also a personal connection, if you will. Um, yeah. that, dimension, that dimension also has immense, immense value. So, yes, I all think- the, there are many, many mantras and uh, as long as they're authentic mantras instead of something invented, they have that effect of elevating consciousness.
1: I think, I think we really should. Um, we've been talking spiritual from the get-go, but I think we have to, to explain to people that spiritual is very different from religious beliefs and explain the difference in how they complement one another rather than conflict.
2: Very good point. Um, Religion is uh, an important vehicle for creating unity in communities, for establishing certain baseline criteria for behavior, for bringing people together, and there are many good things that can come from religion. Religions have a point of origin in historic time whether it's 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, however long back, the area of exploration that you and I are addressing here doesn't come from historic time. It's ahistoric. It comes from outside, if you will, the the material creation. That's the direction of consciousness. That's where the mantras go. Um, And it there's no converting involved. You know, you, if you're one religion, you can convert to another religion, but the, everyone is by nature consciousness. So that there's no converting to that. It's already a part of everyone and everything. Uh, big difference, very big difference.
1: Yeah. I know a lot of people say, Oh, that's, that's against my religion. And I always say, no, no, <laughs> Has nothing to do with religion. <clears throat> it has to do with your consciousness. It has to do with your spirit. It has to do with how is your spirit going to worship your God.
2: Well, what's interesting also, Barbara, is that these dimensions that we're talking about you know, the, the eternal self, the non material self, the stimulating of consciousness, the awakening from the sleeping condition of birth and death, those areas of exploration are also there in the traditional religious cultures. But you have to go deep into the mystic dimensions of religions, whether it's Sufi tradition in Islam or the Kabbalah tradition in Judaism or the Christian mystics in in Christian history. If you go deep into religious cultures, you'll find it. Religions ideally point to that. They point to that place of union of all beings on an eternal plane. It's just that really people aren't that much interested in it. It's not taught very well or very often. And so religion has kind of devolved in the sense to uh, a family routine. I mean, my wife and I are Jewish and we just came out of the holy, high holy days of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and we go to temple, and the rabbi there is a very good friend of ours, and we enjoy seeing our friends from the synagogue community and, and uh, singing the songs that we've known since we were children, and there's a certain comfort and uh, uh, familiarity in all of that, uh, but th- that's different. From what we're discussing we're talking we're talking about something a bit more sophisticated
1: well, deeper go it deeper. <laughs> deeper.
2: deeper I don't know
1: about sophistication <laughs> i I think well, that, it's <laughs> in, that
2: sense, in 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 this sense that you know a, a a light reading of the scriptures, the Bible and whether it's the New Testament or the Jewish Bible. It talks about a divinity that's not always very likable. You know, it's a kind of a god of chastisement and punishment and so on. And um, if you that, and that can be a bit of a turnoff. I know it was for me. It was for George too. George was George was not happy with the church religion that he was brought up in. He he, he walked away from religion at a very young age. But here's a good example of someone who had absolutely zero interest in religion. But when he learned about consciousness, mantras, yoga, the meditational practices, he got so excited. That became number one priority for him in his life. There's a very good point of tangency there in how George was very turned off by his family religion but completely turned on by what he discovered in India.
1: Well, that it's India has has a lore, has a lore to it that is really profound, and <clears throat> I, I know that that when George went, he was he was like a sponge, and and you know he just uh, what I found fascinating was his his playing of the sitar, and how. It, it seemed to awaken stuff in him, almost as though it it he hit he would hit a chord and it would he'd resonate to it internally, so that so that everybody finds their own way, and unfortunately, everybody's way is very personal, so you can't say to someone, well, how'd you find that, and you know, and it won't work for them. None of us are going to sit down and play a sitar, probably, but. Um, For him, it it woke him up on many different levels. And he found a teacher, and he studied with that teacher for a very long time.
2: He did. Ravi Shankar was uh, his music guru. Um, It was in that mid-60s period when uh, some of his musician friends were saying to him, you know, you really should check out what this guy Ravi Shankar is doing. It's pretty interesting stuff. George went to, uh, there was a music store on Oxford Street that had kind of the latest albums. And they had some of Ravi Shankar's sitar records there, and George bought them. He described it listening to the sitar, which is this fretless instrument. It's a stringed instrument, but there's no frets like on a guitar. It's it, it meaning that the this, the strings, the notes that you play aren't restricted to Da, da 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 there there's a uh, an area where the notes blend and bend so that you can get sounds that go Wah, ah, ah. and in a sense it's like a heart yearning that yearning of the heart with these strings bending and it's it's part of um Indian uh temple music sacred music that they play in the in the beautiful temples in India and when George pl- played those albums of Ravi Shankar's sitar uh, performances, he said there was something familiar about it. And I learned, uh, for Here Comes the Son, I interviewed maybe 75 people, and one of them was George's sister, Louise. And Louise described for me that when uh, she was an older sibling, and when their mother was pregnant with George, 1942 or Uh, she used to play uh, on the radio on Sundays there was a show called All India on the BBC radio which was Ravi Shankar playing sitar much of it Ah, and she played she would tune into that show as a way of bringing calm and peace to the child in her womb the little baby George Harrison that was inside her so when grown-up George heard Ravi Shankar's albums and said there was something familiar about it, whether he was remembering things that he had heard when he was in his mother's womb or from a previous lifetime. I mean, that, that we'll never know, but he did say there was something very, very familiar and appealing about it. And that's when he traded in his guitar uh, to, to to learn sitar with Ravi Shankar. They met, and Ravi liked the young George Harrison. He was in his 20s, late 20s, and uh, found him very sincere. And so he agreed to teach him how to play sitar. And they went to uh, Kashmir, uh, to Srinagar, which is the capital of Kashmir, north of, of India. And they stayed on this houseboat, on a lake called Dal Lake, and that's where Ravi Shankar taught George to play sitar, and he got pretty good at it. <laughs> he got pretty good.
1: <laughs> I think he got pretty good. You'll, at you'll hear him. Tried.
2: You'll yeah, you'll hear him playing it if you listen to Norwegian Wood. Down 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 down. <laughs> that's a, that's an early sitar performance by George. George Harrison, It oh, got wow. much better later. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 interesting that the four the four Beatles were so different, and yet there was a blend of energy there that created amazing music.
2: Oh my God, and that, that's never going to be repeated again. That was that was but, a but miracle.
1: He basically always. It in the background he preferred it there and and it's it's kind of interesting that that of all the Beatles um his journey uh was very different and and it just it 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 was it was magical what pulled them together what held them together and and they didn't even think that they would last that long and um it's it's something that I don't think any of them could walk away from. It haunted them, even when they weren't together. So I'm wondering if karmically there was something that was intentional for them all to be together for, for all together now. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> that's that's one of those grand questions about the Beatles that everyone's always asking, you know, is this what's... Um, divine beings descended and, and, You know, if you go online, you'll find there's even a religion called Beetleism.
3: Oh, God. <laughs> it, says, it, says,
2: it says that we all have a bit of Beatles in all of us, you know. Get in touch with your inner Ringo. <laughs> oh, God.
3: <laughs> well, actually. Yeah,
2: but it was magical. It was magical. Absolutely magical.
1: Well, Ringo and he got along.
2: Yeah, they were uh, a lot good better. Buddies.
1: Good buddy, you know, a lot better than the other two who, are, who theoretically were the um, composers and lyricists. But um, George had beautiful music in him too, and when he they did. when they he started, did. you know, when they when they started to to listen to it, they were blown away.
2: Yeah, if they called and, George the quiet one, it wasn't because uh-huh. he didn't have anything to say. It's <laughs> just that the, others, the other guys were doing all the talking. It was after the Beatles broke up. I mean, I, I don't want to sound crude, but with the way George described it is that after the Beatles broke up, he had so many songs that he had been trying to get recorded on the albums. And he said It was, it was like, uh, what is it? you know, purging himself. <laughs> yeah, I won't go into detail. But he had all these songs that he had never had a chance to record. So his first foray into solo music was the first three-album rock collection in music history. And he had so many songs. There was three albums in <laughs> that oh first goodness. solo album, All Things Must Pass. It amazing. He had so much music uh, in him. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, of course, did, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, he did amazing have, music he, and,
1: I mean, there was that one lawsuit with um, My Sweet Lord. Yes. The, um, yeah, that
2: was, <clears throat> uh, you know, one of um, George's signature songs, you know, probably V., signature song of all of the music that he ever wrote was my sweet lord and uh, it's it's a simple melody it's a three chord structure you know my sweet lord and the the same chord structure da 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 was used some years before by the Girl group, I can't remember their name now, who sang, you know, he's so fine, gonna make him mine. And there was a court case saying that George had plagiarized the music. So he brought in ethnomusicologists and music experts to argue that you you can't copyright da da da, you can't copyright the notes, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. How many there's so many songs that start off? Da da da. But um the, so the judge ruled that it was inadvertent plagiarism. And so he had to give up the the copyright in uh in, in My Sweet Lord. <laughs> um okay. but it was an amazing song. Um it was his I think really kind of coming out spiritually We're saying, you know, I I really want to know you, I really want to be with you, I want to go with you, but it'll take so long, my Lord. And what he did was to blend it with musical um, vernacular from other spiritual traditions. So the chorus, for example, um, Hallelujah, that's going in the background, um, that's the Edwin Hawkins singers, That's a that's a Gospel group, and you know they—they they, their big hit was "Oh Happy Day, Oh Happy Day." So that song made them famous, and they were in London when George was recording "My Sweet Lord," and he invited them to come in and be the chorus on his record, and had them switch halfway through from singing "Hallelujah" to. Hari krishna, Krishna krishna, so he's in a, in a musical way, saying, you know that same impulse to join our souls with a supreme soul to to come out of this limited material shell of birth and death to the life of eternity. It's there in all these different traditions, and it was such a beautiful thing because he he saw that very early on. And that kind of broad minded uh ecumenical if you will view of the journey, how oh, what a beautiful thing that was in in that song oh, anyway, he got back awesome. at them because you know he had the he had the other song that was on the b side, so he made royalties <laughs> from the b side <laughs> <laughs> he didn't lose anything
1: <laughs> well I, I found it just so fascinating, you. Know? Each of them took on a separate direction and career that they went in, and and um, but the creativity that was there. What, what I love is after they had broken up, the other the others recognized his his artistic ability at arranging and everything, and they would consult with him.
2: They did, and uh, at a certain point, Paul actually admitted that he. Probably made a mistake by always looking down on George as the younger one in the group. Look, I don't want to give the wrong impression. These guys loved each other. They were the best oh, of yeah. friends. And like family, you know, you have tiffs. Family argues from time to time. It doesn't mean you stop loving each other. So these oh, yeah. guys loved each other. You know, they, they were best buddies. Um,. Because George was the young one, they sometimes it was
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: go, go go play that. So that when he actually well, yeah. started showing what he could do, they were kind of surprised.
1: Well, I, they couldn't have been more famous, I don't think. Um, but but it's just their their artistic gifts as a group were so phenomenal, and they touched so many lives. And I'm pretty sure that they turned a lot of people around as far as, you know, what they were going to do with their lives. I mean, I know certainly inspiration for, you know, um, getting your music out there and becoming famous. But at the same time, I think that there is a spiritual message that's there as well. And working in Congress with other people as opposed to, you know, Stepping out and being, you know, a lead anything. Uh, even though from from time to time, you know, all of them had a, a song that was just theirs. Ringo had a beautiful lullaby that he sang, and and uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a it's a great example of what people who are in in tune with each other spiritually can produce and, and put out there um, into the into the mixing bowl of creation and and, and touch people's lives.
2: Oh, sure. Journalists were always asking George whether the other Beatles were as spiritual as he was. And he would say (laughs) things like, well, you know, Paul is Paul. uh, But uh, uh, John, uh, I went to visit him at the Dakota in his apartment in New York where he was living with Yoko. And I saw Stacks of CDs of Indian music. So he said, "I think that you know there was some influence there." And he said, "So far, Ringo, don't ever underestimate Ringo." He says, "He's probably a yogi disguised as a drummer." (laughs) (laughs) So sure, they all had some.
1: Well, and and actually, I I found, I found it terribly moving that you know he chanted in at his father and mother's bedside when they passed away and when he passed away his son was chanting at his bedside
2: yeah yeah um Sir? i don't think you can ask for much more than that um my my son's a wonderful young man as well he he uh he makes me look like a chump he's so spiritual but, uh, you know, hey,
1: everybody's got their you know, own road. <laughs> yes,
2: indeed. Yes, indeed.
1: I, I think that's that's what's so great about spirituality. It's 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 it, it doesn't limit you. It allows you to express yourself in what is more most natural for the spirit you carry within. So sometimes it's writing, sometimes it's painting, sometimes it's music. Sometimes, I mean, they're, they're there are so many different ways to express yourself creatively and get yourself where you're going. And, and it's, it's really funny. Um, a friend of mine has a, a mother who has dementia, and she gave me the title for a spiritual book that someday I'm going to have to write. And at one point she had said to her mom, where are you going? And her mother turned and looked at her and said, I don't know, but when I get there, I'll let you know. And that's what the spiritual journey is. You know, you know it's spiritual, but you aren't exactly sure where it's going to take you, and what it's going to expose you to, and what it's going to open in you to express within reality. It's an amazing I'll, journey. I can,
2: I can admit something to you that you know wouldn't necessarily talk about. You know, you and your Ten thousand listeners, or whatever. Um, it took me a long time. It took me a long, long time to recognize that. I mean, I was one of those young people in the '60s who really thought, you know, this is the way. I now I've got it. Now I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and um, all that the rest of the world has to do is, you know, get hip to what I found and um i mean that's fine because you know youthful exuberance has its place but i think as you mature you know you what you were saying is quite true as you deepen your understanding of what that calling is for what it's meant what what it can do in the world what the kinds of transformations it can affect, I mean, when I look at the country today and I compare the world we live in now with what I knew growing up I mean maybe I was naive about it as a kid, you know, but it I must say the world seemed like a simpler place and and there wasn't the kind of hostilities that I see now i look i grew, I'm a New Yorker okay, I grew up in yeah. new york uh, and and my background is Jewish. Democratic, liberal, you know, broccoli-chomping, yoga-practicing, mantra-chanting, you know, whatever. And we had Republican friends. We had conservative friends. We, We could have discussions about different points of view. There was never the kind of hostility that I'm seeing today. Oh yeah. There's never this kind of cutthroat, you know, die heretic kind of, you know, polarizing of 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 peoples and I how did we get here? You know, how how have we come to this place? It's so you know, disheartening, you know, it's so discouraging. The only thing I hold on to dearly is what you and I have been talking about namely that each of us in our own way, we can make a difference. If we first reform ourselves, if we become examples of the kind of change that we would like to see, or, and of course Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see oh, yeah. in the world. But I love what um, the late Anita Roddick used to say. Roddick was the founder of the body shop, and she would buy cosmetics and, and herbal products from indigenous peoples around the world. She used to say, if you think that one little entity is too small to make a real difference in the world, you've never been in bed with a mosquito.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's just true. Somebody once said to me, "What what do your followers think of what you've become? And I my, my response was, I was horrified. I said, if anyone's following me, stop, because I don't know where I'm going.
2: <laughs> well, we all play our, our parts. You know, I had a chance. Well, um, so I do I uh, we, we have time for another story?
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: well, after I came back from spending 13 years in ashrams, uh I had no job skills whatsoever. I mean, there wasn't much call for Sanskrit mantras in the corporate world. And eventually, I, I ended up working with someone whom you know very well, Dina Merriam. who's oh, yeah. a fellow fellow yogi and a dear dear soul, and, and someone I practically grew up with. And she, her her father, David Finn, and his partner Bill Ruder had started a public relations firm called Ruder Finn in New York and Tina worked there and she called me and said, Hey, come work with me. I need another yogi up here on the third floor. So we joined forces and uh it was extraordinary seeing how the things that we had learned from our spiritual practices, you know, she's she's a an exponent and a product of of Self-Realization Fellowship, Yogananda's group. And I come from Bhaktivedanta Prabhupada's Krishna uh, Bhakti background. And she said, help me with this gathering at the United Nations. It was a gathering of religious and spiritual leaders back in August of 2000. So I got to interview anyone I wanted from 1,500 spiritual leaders from around the world and other people as well, including some of the sponsors of this gathering one of whom was Stephen Rockefeller. Stephen J. Rockefeller, when he was younger, was heading toward the uh, seminary. He was going to be a priest. And then he discovered Buddhism, and he's been a practicing Buddhist ever since. So I can be a little brazen when I interview people. I say, hey, Stephen, what's it like being a Rockefeller? You know, the cameras are rolling and the lights are on. And he took it seriously. He was a real gentleman. He said, well, you know, some of us are called upon to play out our parts on a grand stage, on a world stage, Other others among us on a more modest, more humble stage. And then he said something I never forgot. He said, who's to say which is more important?
1: Yeah. Because
2: our job is to take the opportunities that are presented to us and to make the most of them. And what you do will influence the people around you, and they will influence the people around them. And in that way, we're connected to the grand scheme of things, even from our humble little place. And uh, I think that's what you've been talking about all this time, Barb, is um, each of us has a role to play. If we listen to that voice of wisdom that's within us, We'll know which way to go. You don't really need I, you know, to take a lot of classes. <laughs> if you no. just listen to your own conscience, you'll know which way to go.
1: Well, I, I tell people usually that <clears throat> I always try to listen for a calling as opposed to making a call. And mm. I have I yeah. have found over my lifetime that that if I'm patient a calling comes. And sometimes it's a telephone call. Sometimes it's another kind of call. But, but you recognize a calling when it happens. And those times when I have been answering a calling and I have felt, oh, I know where I'm supposed to be going and doing. I got it. I'll drive from here. That's when I hit the brick wall. So it's, it's, it's a matter of Trusting a calling is going to take you where you belong, and don't try to steer, because the minute you try to steer, you limit the capacity and the and the and the direction the calling could have taken you in. If you flow with it, if you go with it, you always end up well, where you belong. Um, sometimes, if you if you try to steer, it takes a lot longer to get there. But but. Um, I always tell people, don't try to make that call. Don't try to presume. You know what the universe wants you to do. Make them lay it out You're in front it. of you, and you know, I have I have found that um, when I make a wrong turn, it's usually it's usually because I've made a choice that was not appropriate, and and you know, the universe lets me know in sometimes not so gentle ways, but. But if you wait for the calling, if you're patient, and while you're patient, do whatever meditation or whatever creative work you're doing, and wait because the call always comes when you're ready for it. And, Very you know, nice. If you try That's to, lovely. You know, you, if, you, if you try to bake bread before it's risen, it doesn't taste as good.
2: <laughs> We've had a lot of... Culinary metaphors in our conversation today, Heather, that's nice.
1: I think it's lunchtime and I'm hungry. <laughs>
2: that's what it is, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, a very simple answer to that. So what what was it about George's journey that made you feel, that called to you to write this book?
2: He was an honest human being. You know, in, in those days, there was a lot of posturing. You know, they hit me.
1: Yeah.
2: There's a kind of romanticizing of the 60s as though it was some kind of beautiful, idealistic uh, era. And there were there were some <laughs> nice was there. things about it, but frankly, it was pretty dumb, yeah. honestly. <laughs>
3: Truth be told. Yeah.
2: There were a lot of really dumb stuff, some of it quite dangerous. Um, and to find somebody who was real and true to himself and had a uh, a, a power of discernment. Um, you know, he could size up in a split second what someone's motives were, what, you know, the substance of a thing. It didn't take him long. And um, I appreciated that in him. Um, I appreciated that despite his success and his wealth and his renown and and accomplishments uh, you know he he could live in a very humble way uh, and and um dedicate himself to a spiritual calling i mean how many you know instances that we have of superstars who are also humble spiritual beings. I mean, it doesn't happen that often.
3: No, you know,
2: it's very easy to get caught up in all of that worldly success. You know, when you can have anything in the whole world within a half hour because you've got the money and the influence to to have it. You know that that's kind of seductive. Um, George didn't get sucked into that. I mean, sometimes a little bit, <laughs> but you know, but. Hey as he as he matured um he became a real exemplar. He was a good example <clears throat> of someone who understood that spirituality needs to make a difference in the world. He was, for example, a very committed environmentalist. Oh yeah. He was very concerned about what was happening to the natural world and so on. And you know, um I liked that part of him. I like the social activist Part of him the anti nuclear pro ecological side of him um, that was inspiring for me um, i he he had qualities I wanted to emulate you no know, I, th- I think I wrote this book because I felt a debt of gratitude to him for being the kind of person he was, good role model. Good father, certainly. Oh yeah. Um
1: well, good I partner. Think he he absolutely um, is one of the few that, that truly towards the end especially lived his philosophy. And um, there was a magic about him. I, I he's to me he's a spiritual icon. I know he's a rock and roll icon, but he's a spiritual icon as well because he he wasn't swayed by all of the money that came his way i mean he used it to benefit others and and he contributed money all over the place he didn't he didn't uh, take baths in money or anything like that that we could have but it's dirty but um and I think that 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 his his son what what has his son done with his life I mean th- I mean to be his son is is you know magical but how hmm. has his son continued on with with um with the message that George had
2: I don't know the answer that's a good question um, I was never particularly in touch with Danny. and uh, you know when when I wrote the book. Um, I sent a copy of the manuscript to Donnie and his mother Olivia, and I said, "Look, I don't want to publish this if it has mistakes in it or if it has things in it that you would rather I not say." And uh, I, I got word back; you know, they they had a few corrections they asked me to make, and I made them. Um, but we didn't, you know, have active exchanges. So I'm not really sure. Um, I can't help but think that he's a chip off the old block and that there's a lot of his father in him. And, you know, having grown up with someone like that, you can't help but um, benefit from the everyday wisdom that no doubt was a part of their discussions and all. But I couldn't tell you from my own experience.
1: I mean he was George was bigger than life and he had the luxury of following his his spiritual pathway um 100% and and he chose and he chose to do so and he did it well not everybody has that kind of ability to make that commitment and yet, and yet he he the message he left is so Beautiful, um, you know the only the only movie there's there was a movie on the Beatles. I forget what the what it was called, but but when it was made, they they filmed all four of them differently because they didn't they were still fighting. Um. Actually, the one the one movie that I that I saw in it, it was the um, oh gosh the yellow submarine movie the cartoon one. Mm-hmm. And it, in many ways, it had a spiritual message in there that was so subtle, the people that did it didn't even realize it. Um, I interviewed them, and, and at one point there's a whole, this great big log corridor, and they keep going in and out of the different doors. And that corridor with a lot of doors is a symbol that, that many past-life people use as a visual to take people in and out of past lives you go down the corridor and there's a there's a uh number on the uh, a date on the door and if you are drawn to it you go in and that's a past life well they use this corridor of going in and out of many past lives almost to symbol to symbolically say they've been through lots of different experiences and lots of different lives so and yet they've come together as a whole and hmm. um when I brought that up to them, they said, wow, we didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's something that happened artistically and creatively in, in making that, that, that sort of said they may have been together in past lives in different ways and different forms, but this, this lifetime, they coalesced into some, a group that made a difference, that made a point that made uh, people think more and look more. And, um, it isn't their pop recognition, but the spiritual message that all of their music does seem to 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 bring out. And and oftentimes, I think one of them said, "We didn't really do a lot to composing; it just happened." And when that happens, you know, spirit has something to do with it.
2: Yeah, well said, well said. You know, there's much that can be learned from. Uh, from the interactions of that group and the creative output. Um, it, it, the earlier music, I think, was a little bit more bubblegummy. Um, yeah. It was, It was. Uh, frankly, I mean, I'll say this straight up, it was after George discovered yoga and meditation and uh, the chanting of Hare Krishna that the Beatles' music began to take a bit of a turn toward things that are more socially relevant, deeper issues, you know uh turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream, you know from different spiritual texts and all and
3: uh,
2: uh so yeah, I think they 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 benefited from that musically, certainly, George had that influence on them
1: well, I think the the message too is is so profound, I mean. I th- I think that reading this book is a is a huge wake-up call to anybody who is who who was of that generation and listened to the music. And, and and you know when a piece of music or a piece of literature survives the test of time that there is a message for all of humanity. And certainly um you know I went back and listened to a lot of the music um because you know as i was reading the book you know they were talking about different pieces of music and i played the music to make sure that i knew i had a feeling for anyhow what mm. was what was, what the purpose of it was was it to open a door was it to was it to trigger a memory was it to open someone up to a different perspective on life and those messages are in a lot of those later songs for sure
2: yeah and they hold up well too over time not all music does <laughs> but uh that that's that's a that's a uh, a repertoire that's going to endure
1: oh my gosh yeah i mean they they have they they've sold they' sold more records than elvis did and you know not to diminish his talent and his gift but but there's there's a There's another level of insight and wisdom that goes into the music that stays with you and and in spite of yourself you will either remember it or you will remember the message and consider it applied to apply it to your life. We all have free will. You know, even though you can tell me what the secret of eternal life is unless I buy it and want to apply (laughs) it, it's not gonna it's not gonna help. And and I think that's what I love about the music. If you listen to it just to be entertained, you are. If you listen to it for a hidden meaning, you find it. If there is a message in it for you for your life, it, it, it stays with you long enough for you to discover it so that, so that those, on a, those who are seekers will find what they're looking for.
2: That and, may, you know, Barbara, that may be the most lovely summary of the Beatles music that I've ever heard. Well done.
1: Ah, well, thank you. It just <laughs> flowed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you get you get excited about something that 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 actually has such a deep meaning that that you know you want to pound it into everybody's head. You want to stop people and say, "Listen to this," and see that's that's where that's where my my. Be careful about your enthusiasm and
3: yes, exactly. <laughs> ex- ex-
1: express it in the appropriate manner and place.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's that tough lesson that I confessed to you <laughs> took me a long time yeah. to understand. But, uh,
3: that's a tough you know, one.
2: You know, yeah, you know, look, everyone's on their own path, and, and uh, some paths are more challenging and difficult and dark than others. Yeah. And um, I think the best we can do is, is to be thinking, feeling human beings and, and to be sensitive to one another and maybe in that, maybe in our humanness, we will find the key to our more than humanness.
1: Yeah. It is very true. And but I think one of the cool things about their stuff is that it shows you what you can do if you open that creative link inside of you. I mean, not everybody's going to be a beetle or even close, but but if you open that creative portal pathway, whatever you want to call it, to to universal consciousness, your life improves dramatically because you have access to more information. To more insight, to more wisdom, to more joy, and and with all of that available to you, it it you'd be a jerk to not try it out. Um. And, and I don't mean to call half of the audience a jerk. Um. But but it's something it's something to consider, and you know. So that's why I do the radio show. I get a chance to talk to authors. I can get excited about their work. And I'm not going to get shut down because of it. But I, I <laughs> promise you, if I ring a doorbell here and said, I've got to tell you something fabulous, um, much as people love me, I don't think that they put up with a lot of this stuff that I get excited about. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you do you do it right. with grace and with the best of intentions. <laughs>
1: well, it's you, you know, putting it out there and saying to people, go listen to the music again and listen with another ear. Um,
2: that's a nice takeaway I think from our talk here today is um, listen listen to the music and, and um, know that there was something going on there that George is trying to put a message out people didn't always understand what it was I and mean, that's another reason for writing the book we knew that he was spiritual in some way but what exactly was he trying to say and I hope that here comes the sun spill sells out for readers what that message was and and how it's meant for everyone. It's not a Hindu thing or a sectarian thing. That there it speaks to a spirit that's in all life, not even limited to humans, but to trees and to birds and animals.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: And and how through that we're really connected and um it's there. It's there in the music and if you, if you look for it, it can be very rewarding,
3: very, very rewarding.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I just saw our time is getting limited here. Um, I want to make sure that you get out there, your website and what you're doing and where they can find you.
2: Well, people can go to joshuamgreen.info and they can click on books and they'll see all they uh, would like to know about the uh, biography of George Here Comes the Sun and some other things, and, uh, yeah, Um, thank you for this opportunity. I I always enjoy our time together, Barbara. You're a wonderful interviewer and conversationalist, and uh, it's always a pleasure.
1: Well, write another book. We can do it again.
2: (laughs) There's a challenge. Thank you for that, too. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, there has to be another book in the works. There just has to be.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of, well, a lot of what I'm called upon to do is from the, that with that other hat on about Holocaust history, and uh, that's that's a different discussion.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and. um. That that was a profound time, and being faced with possibly it coming again is a scary thing. So, oh. so in the meantime, people get out there and chant and see if we can't. Exactly. Reverse
2: exactly. I'm,
1: I will tip. promise you. I mean, if you if you're chanting, Hare Krishna, you begin to dance. There's no way to stay still. So. <laughs>
2: That is true. That is true. It's it's um it's catchy. <laughs> it
1: is, and, and not only that, but but it awakens, probably a yearning that everybody has inside them, and they don't know it's there. And again, has nothing to do with religion. Has to do with spirit. And
2: I think find key if we all just chanted yeah. and danced more, I think the world would be a happier place. Don't you?
1: Oh. Absolutely. And and I think I think I think your book uh, on the swami uh does show that, that that he he danced and sang everywhere. And um it was catching. Joy is catching. Yeah. And and yeah. George had George had the joy. And yeah. um the
2: most wonderful people that we've been blessed to know have have been joyful and they generally sang and danced.
3: Let
1: me Music is amazing. It is. Well, that and laughter. I think that that there's laughter there, too, and the laughter is, to me, the best medicine ever, ever, ever. But um, I I do have to, I thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure, again. And um, maybe I'll get you and Dina together, and we'll do something together, the three of us. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that would That'd be fun. a that would be a joy. Thank you, Barbara.
1: Thank you too. And thank you everybody for being here. This has been a blissful afternoon. Now I'm higher in a kite and um I may just turn on some chanting and see what it, where where it will take me. Please join us again next week and um have a wonderful blessed day and uh and the rest of the week too. Bye-bye now.